0: Imagine the scene. Three to four hundred people, strangers to one another, are told to pair up and ask their partner
1: one single question. What do you want? At the age of 84, psychiatrist and best-selling author Irvin Yallam remains driven to transform the pain of existence into the joy of existence.
0: Time after time, I have seen this group exercise evoke unexpectedly powerful feelings. Men and women, and these are by no means desperate, are needy, but successful, well-functioning, well-dressed people who glitter as they walk are stirred to their depths. They call out to those who are forever lost, dead or absent parents, spouses, children, friends. I want to see you again. I want your love. I want you to know you're proud of me. I want my life to mean something i want to accomplish something i want to matter
1: to be important to be remembered so much wanting so much longing and so much pain so close to the surface writes irvin yalom only minutes deep is the way he puts it welcome to wavemaker conversations a podcast for the insanely curious i'm your host michael shoulder Dr. Irvin Yallum, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. You've written so many great books that I've been immersed in. The first book that I discovered of yours, which a therapist turned me on to, to cope with death anxiety, and it's called Staring at the Sun, Overcoming the Terror of Death. I never imagined that a book about that subject could be so uplifting. And then there's your more recent book, Creatures of a Day. 10 magnificent vignettes about the relationships you've had with your patients and how you've helped them. Uh, But since this is a wave maker conversation, I want to share with you something. An oceanographer once explained to me what waves do in the ocean. She said they transfer energy over long distances. So I'd like you to start with a concept that you say is a singularly powerful concept in countering what you call our human anxiety over death and the transience, transience of life, and that is rippling. Tell me about rippling, how you discovered it, how you discovered the importance of it, and how you use it in your life and your patients' lives.
0: Well, rippling is a concept that I described in Staring at the Sun, and for the listeners, the the, the word staring at the sun comes from a aphorism by a French writer who said that uh, that there are two things we shouldn't stare at. We shouldn't stare at the at the sun and we shouldn't stare at death. Uh, this book, however, is taking issue with the second part of that that I, I feel that it, it, that we should be staring at death uh, because uh, they, it can change our life to look at look at death. and if we uh, we stare away from it or pretend it doesn't happen or deny death, uh, that then I think perhaps we're living a little bit less fully and less uh, authentically. So I'm, I'm suggesting that we can stare directly at death and there'll, there'll be some benefits from that. So what I did was work for many, many years with patients who are dying of cancer. And it was through working with these patients that I began to, to learn a, a, a great deal about what it means to, to face death. The, the basic thing that I learned is this, this adage that though the actuality or the physicality of, of death destroys us, the idea of death can save us. And so I've, I've looked at a lot of different ways of, of coping with death. One of my solutions is, is the idea of rippling, that if we think of, just as a stone thrown into a pond, we'll just keep rippling on and on and on, transferring energy, if you will, I like that idea. Uh, but it's it, something of ourself that we pass on to others. And that we're not going to experience, and of course we're not. Uh, the, uh, people have been dying since the creation of life. Uh, but it, nonetheless, through, through rippling, through some way we can influence others who will
1: influence others and others too, then I think we, we pass things uh, along of ourselves. Let me uh, share one story with you and, and tell me what your take on it is. Uh, you talk about many people's first experiences with the, the awareness of their mortality and, and the anxiety it causes. And mine came in college. And I, I always remember where it was. It was, uh, it was freshman or sophomore year in the stacks of the library at Vassar College, yeah. uh, which were pretty much underground. And I was reading Plato and it just hit me. And for days and days, you know, I was just paralyzed by it. And I went to this rabbi in Poughkeepsie, New York, a Rabbi Zimitz, I'll always remember his name. You talk about rippling. Yeah. So this was, you know, I'm this was uh, 30 some odd years ago. And I was always inspired by his sermons. And you know, he said, look, we, I can't promise you, Judaism can't promise you a some specific vision of life after death, but all the evidence in nature around me tells me that you know, death is not the end, which is something you would disagree with. But but he said, look, you know, a stream flows into a river, a river flows into the ocean. Is the stream dead in the ocean or is it just changed forms? He started pulling out books as, as you like to do, you know, references from literature and all kinds of things. And by the end of this session, I sort of felt uplifted. And then as he walked me out the door, he gave me these parting words. He looked at me and he was from the old country and he said, one more thing. Get yourself a girlfriend.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. And I just wonder, because as I was reading your work, I was thinking about that, because again, was he telling me to just fall in love and it would get my mind off it? Get yourself a girlfriend <laughs> and project yourself in the future, I think he was saying. Give us a few examples you know, or an example or two from your own practice and the people who you have gotten to know and help over the years, where rippling has really turned around somebody's life. In this recent
0: book, I have a story entitled You Have to Give Up the Hope of a Better Past. One of the ideas in that story is that you can't change the past, although people keep almost as a silly way kind of wishing that they had a better childhood and can't get past it in a way. And one of the ways of getting past it which I'll we'll often say to people, is that you can, you can break the cycle. There's been a cycle for many of us passed on from grandparent to parent to us uh, that have caused us to behave and feel in not very comfortable terms. But you can, you can change that by breaking the cycle and setting up a new kind of environment for your
1: own children. So breaking the cycle is an important one that I've learned. I was really struck by that. You must give up the hope for a better past, uh, which is Chapter 7 in Creatures of a Day. There's a twist at the end where the woman, the patient you're treating, actually redefines her past. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me about how she did that and maybe something we can all take away from that experience. She redefines her past. You'll have to remind me that I've written so much that I can't remember all the <laughs> Well, see, this is all fresh in my mind because I've read in the past few weeks, but wasn't she, I believe that was the story where she was uh, the person who dreamed of being a writer. Is that correct? Oh, and yeah. she had all those boxes of letters and she couldn't find the this key letter that you had been curious to know about yes that's that's right uh, she uh, she this is,
0: a, this is a very interesting issue this woman came to me she I had seen her before a couple of times for a short short session she wanted about six or seven sessions each time, and she worked well with them I didn't see her again for some years. This time she came in with a she came in and in her first session she started talking about her being a writer. And and then she also told me that she had uh, everything she'd ever written, almost everything she'd ever written, and they were in a a box that she had at home. So we talked a couple more sessions, and then one day she arrived with this huge box of everything that she had written and uh, had been afraid to go through it until she opened it for the first time for years, She had a new box now for the last few years. So she started rummaging through pages and... And I asked her, what was so fearful about you? What were you afraid you'd find? And she said she knew that she had written a story about uh, a time when she was suicidal as a teenager. And she could not face that again. Uh, She thought it would just stir up so much anguish for her. Uh, So eventually she came in one day and said, well, here's a story about me on this bus when I was suicidal. And I read the story. Uh, but, in fact, it was a very, uh, it was a very uplifting story. A uh, mm-hmm. story of a, uh, of a bus driver who was quite kind to her and offered her a Coca-Cola when she was freezing and, and uh, later on her sit near the heater in the bus. And so the issue was, she realizes, I said, tell me, well, tell me about that story. and She says, well, I just wrote it. I didn't find that story, but I, I rewrote that story with a different ending. And the different thing had a little bit about coming to see me because, of course, I was this bus driver in the, in the, in the news story, and I was offering her some, some uh, understanding and warmth by, through understanding. So, yes, she changed, she changed her past and wrote that. I like the phrase <laughs> that you, you have to give up the hope of a better past. I don't, I don't think it's original, but I don't know where I got it from.
1: Right, and so uh, sorry to sidetrack you. Coming back to these rippling techniques, which which you find so therapeutic and and uh, fulfilling, tell me more about that.
0: Well, I, I take great great pleasure in uh, my patients, and in even in answering email people to try to give them something, which then ripples over to their children and their children. I think that's one of the reasons that my profession is is so. Uh, is so rewarding um, and uh, you know I was thinking the other day that I know very few therapists at least in my community who ever retire here I am 84 and I'm still practicing because frankly I, I enjoy it so much it's, it's such a, a privilege to be allowed into this person personal life that uh, people have often never shared with anyone else and I know that when I see parents when I see teachers, uh, when I see physicians, anything that I do for these patients gets passed on to, to many, many others.
1: In one work of yours, you talk about, uh, let me see, what, what did you call it, the gratitude visit and the idea that it's never too late to have this sense of rippling. And I, I just want to read you something and then have you react to it. Uh, there, there's a, a woman who has a wonderful website called Brain Pickings. Her name is Maria Popova and she circulates and, and synthesizes some some beautiful, beautiful works that would often go unnoticed. Albert Camus wrote a letter in 1957 after he won the Nobel Prize. I want to read this to you and get your reaction and maybe tie it into your work. Have you ever heard this letter to his teacher? Nope. November 1957. Dear Monsieur Germain. This is from Albert Camus. I let the commotion around me these days subside a bit before speaking to you from the bottom of my heart. I have just been given far too great an honor, one I neither sought nor solicited. But when I heard the news, my first thought after my mother was of you. Without you without the affectionate hand you extended to the small poor child that I was without you without your teaching and example none of all this would have happened i don't make too much of this sort of honor but at least it gives me the opportunity to tell you what you have been and still are for me and to assure you that your efforts your work and the generous heart you put into it still live in one of your little schoolboys who, despite the years, has never stopped being your grateful pupil? I embrace you with all my heart, Albert Camus. That's a, a very, very lovely letter,
0: and I, that topic has been on my mind a, a great deal now. I'm writing a memoir. That's a kind of a proper, appropriate book for an 83-year-old man to do. So I've been writing that and thinking about my past and trying to put the strands, pull strands together. I've often had a view of myself as uh, self-created. My parents had no education. I don't think I learned very much from them. And I kind of feel like I've I've created myself and gone my own way. Um, But then as I've been thinking about my my life and and thinking about uh, mentors in my life, of which I thought I had none, there actually have been some important ones. So I've been writing about these stories. A couple of them are dead, and I can't, uh, I can't really express this to them. One of them is living. Uh, my professor, the chairman of my department at Stanford, who hired me uh, after my residency at Hopkins. I, I had to serve two years in the Army. Every, every doctor did in those days. And then I, he, he brought me on to Stanford. He's been an incredible mentor. And I- what, re- what's, his na- what's his name? David Hamburg. He got the Presidential Medal a couple of years ago. He was head of the Carnegie Foundation after, after he left Stanford. An extraordinary man. But I've gone out of my way to see him now whenever I come to the East Coast and to, to let him know uh, how, gra- how grateful I am to him. And also, uh, uh, even I've written a good bit about the, the dead mentors I've had, my professors at, at Johns Hopkins. And that's been quite satisfying to me, too. And having a mentor is, is so important, as it was for Camus. In my memoir, I start a chapter thinking about going bicycling and, and thinking about this, this daydream that has come to my mind hundreds of times. And the daydream is simply that it's, I, my father had a little grocery store in Washington, D.C. and that a man comes into the store, a well-dressed man with a tie, needs to talk to my father and um and my father doesn't quite know what to make of this but goes into a, a a terrible back room where there are roaches and everything and the beer is kept and sits down with this man and the man tells him well that your son me irvin is really an outstanding student and he should be he should be transferred to a private school in washington to get a really good education and that's the daydream. It ends there. cuts. I never know what my father's response is in my own mind. But the importance of, of being recognized and then being mentored by someone is,
1: is tremendously important to me, as now I see it was for Camus as well. When you say daydream, do you, was it an actu- actually, uh, this was a, f- a piece of fiction oh, that you were imagining?
0: No, I made it up. It never happened. I guess in the back of my mind, had had hoped it would happen.
1: This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm speaking with psychiatrist Irvin Yalom, whose latest book is called Creatures of a Day and Other Tales of Psychotherapy. You're about to hear some great stories, including one from my friend and former CNN colleague, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, about what prompted him to become a doctor. It is strikingly similar to what you'll hear drove Irv Yalom to become a doctor as well. And if you stick with this conversation till the end, which I highly recommend, I will ask Dr. Yalom, a man deeply in love with his wife of 60 years and a passionate author, what works better to cope with existential anxiety, sex or
2: writing? Here's a tale of two students, both working adults. He commutes to college before and after work, carrying all the baggage that goes with it. She goes to Independence University, and Independence University goes with her. It's online, so all she needs is a connection, and anywhere becomes her campus. He's getting a degree, but he's also getting majorly stressed out. She chose Independence University online for a better life offline. Visit independence.edu or call 800-370-1077 today.
3: Hey, it's Flo, and this is my impression of a person having a phone conversation in the elevator. What? Yeah, no, I'm in the elevator. The elevator! Yeah! Anyway, I bundled our home and auto insurance through Progressive. No, bundled! We're gonna save big bucks now. No, bucks! Bucks!
2: Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save.
3: Hello? Hello? She hung up.
1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company Affiliates, home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. To tee off the second half of my conversation with psychiatrist Irv Yalom, I'm going to play an exchange I recently had with Carol Dweck. Her work on what she calls the growth mindset has had a profound impact in the fields of education, parenting, and performance psychology.
4: I was interested in how kids coped with failures. And I saw that, as I expected, for some kids, it was, you know, a tragedy. It meant they were not smart. It was the worst thing that could have happened to them, and they sort of fell apart.
1: By the way, how did you see that?
4: Oh, well, I gave them uh, problems to solve. They did pretty well. Then I gave them some hard ones. And I looked at what happened after that. The kids who didn't cope well with failure really showed impaired performance not just on the hard problems but everything that followed whereas other kids not only cope with the failure some of them loved it they relished it they said things like i love a challenge or you know, I was hoping this would be informative. Well, that's when my eyes really opened and my jaw dropped.
1: By the way, these, I'm, my jaw drops when I hear that story because these kids were how old?
4: Ten years old.
1: So, so that, that's quite something to articulate for a ten-year-old.
4: Yes, and I, I've actually seen it in kids quite a bit younger. So I thought, wow, I understood that you could cope or not cope, but love failure, relish failure... I was so far from that place at that time. But then and there, I thought, these are my role models. I'm going to unlock their secrets and maybe bottle it, give it to everybody I can, including myself. Uh, So over the years, I came to recognize that it was the growth and the fixed mindsets that were creating these different patterns. The kids who were falling apart were thinking, my intelligence is just fixed, I have a certain amount, and it's no good. This failure told me it's no good. But the kids who were loving the challenge were thinking, my abilities, these are things I can develop. I don't want to waste time just doing easy things and looking good. I want to get smarter. And these hard problems, these challenges are the way I can get smarter.
1: Speaking to your colleague at Stanford, Carol Dweck, oh, yes. uh, who thankfully introduced us and uh, you know her whole work on the fixed mindset versus growth mindset and trying to instill the growth mindset. Here you are at 84 still going strong and still highly motivated to help people and create these ripples. Uh, that must have required a lot of resilience. And indeed, just reading about your therapy sessions, you know, requires this, certainly requires that growth mindset that Carol Dweck talks about, that with a little more hard work, maybe we can get to the bottom of this and improve things. Where did you get your resilience from? And what, what do you think is the, is that secret source? If there were one key ingredient for resilience, what is it? Well, that's a that's a, that's a
0: very difficult question. I don't think I can. I don't think I can answer that. Where did I get my own resilience? I I, I really don't know. Um, and I'm thinking about it a great. I'm thinking about it a great deal now, as as I as I write this memoir. You know, I I struggled very hard as a student to to get into medical school. Uh, when I went to medical school, this is. It's hard to believe, really, but at that time there was a rather official 5% uh, limit to taking Jewish students to the medical school class. They took no more than 5%. A, five,
1: a 5% quota 5%, on Jewish
0: students. 5% quota. It was nationwide. Uh, and so I, I had a, I worked terribly, terribly hard in undergraduate school. I thought my mission only was to make all A's, and they could not turn me down. And so then I went into, into medical school and in in medical school I, I went I was only at George Washington for a year. I transferred it to Boston University because I did not want to be near my fiancee in Boston. So I had my last three years there. And the very first time I saw a patient in in psychiatry, was at a conference where all the professors sit around, and there, many of them were denizens of the psychoanalytic community in Boston, who was a very severe and uh, frightening uh, group of people, I thought. And um, and they were very hard on the other students who presented their case after they'd seen their patient for eight weeks. And so when it came time for me to present my patient, I just told, I didn't do it in a formal way of giving the past history and everything, I thought, I would tell it as a story because I've always wanted to be a story writer and I've been reading a devotee of fiction since as long as I can read. So I told it as a story and it was a patient in our very first session. This was a long time ago. It was back in 56 or so. Uh, And she said to me that she was a lesbian. And my response to this was I decided I, I just had to be totally honest. I said, well, I don't know what that means. Can you explain to me? And so that's how that's how our our sessions started off. Well so she became my educator, and I was very honest with her and and we had these eight sessions where we we grew very close and at the end of this at the, when I gave the conference when I presented the case, I got only silence from the professors there. everyone sort of said, well the, uh, this case speaks for itself, there's nothing more that we could add and it was at that moment that I felt. Well, I thought I could really had something special to offer to the field.
1: And after that, I I felt I I gained confidence uh, tremendously. So that was the 1950s. Clearly, you have been on a learning journey for for the rest of your life. What do you know now about what it is to be human and what makes human beings fulfilled that you didn't know back in the 1950s? Well, I sort began to learn even then that we really need to be
0: honest and authentic and that that, that kind of authenticity is really going to be instrumental in, in people feeling better about themselves and, and being able to, to grow. I had an analysis, as residents did in those days, uh, three years of four times a week on the couch with a very uh, kind of old-school, rigid uh, a psychoanalyst following Freud's model of being rather silent and being out of view at the end of the couch and giving me only interpretations, nothing else. And I, I ended that up feeling, this is not enough to get from that for 700 hours of work, but but I ended up feeling that's a very bad model for therapy uh, and that we need to be much more uh, personal, we need to be more genuine, we need to be more open with the patient. And since then, there's been a ton of empirical research that's been done that indicates that the nature of the of the therapist, the way the therapist engages the patient, uh, and Carl Rogers was the, the fountain of a lot of this research, you know, it makes a huge difference in terms of outcome, that we have to be genuine and uh, give, uh, you know, unconditional positive response and have empathy for patients. Those were the three variables that Rogers mentioned, and they hold very strong even unto this
1: day. And when you talk about honesty and transparency, uh, it strikes me that uh, there was a phrase in one of your books, you, you talk about the value of regret. You say regret has been given a bad name, and you hear people say this all the time, I have no regrets. And I almost find that hard to believe. And I, and I think you, your framing is critical to convey to the audience because you view regret as uh, something that has the potential to transform one's present and future in a very positive way. Describe to me the value of regret. I have never had a patient come to see me, see
0: me and have no regrets. Of course, they're self-selected. But I work with regrets quite a bit. And they they look at what they regretted in their life and what they haven't done in their life. And that's one thing, to look at regrets from the past. But then you you have a moment where you can begin to to say to them, how could you, if we were to meet a year from now, and you were to see me one year from now, how could you possibly have lived a regret-free life during that time? And that's where the therapeutic crunch comes in. What could you do differently so that you wouldn't constantly be building up regrets, which you use to judge yourself adversely. So I, I like to work with that concept. It's awfully important for an awful lot of people.
1: And then, of course, there's some things that, you know, you really cannot change and you can only regret forever. There was a headline today on Yahoo News that really struck me, and I was curious what your response is. And it's, it's, it's about a politician, but it's an apolitical question. And the headline read, Can Joe Biden Run? with a broken heart. And I thought I'd love to get your, your insight. Obviously, Joe Biden, who who lost his wife and young daughter many years ago, and now has lost his son at the prime of his life. Can anyone with a broken heart take on a big new challenge? Oh, such a difficult problem.
0: I, I worked for years with people who um, who were bereaved. I have worked both with spouses and with parents who were bereaved, and, and by far the most difficult kind of grief is, is parental bereavement. Uh, it lasts much longer than spouse bereavement. And men and women, father and mother do, at least in, in the study that I saw, that I ran, do tend to, uh, in those days at least, they, they, they grieved in different ways. The mother kind of wanting to go back and back and back to the child and to the events and to the loss, whereas husbands, I know this seems stereotypical, but it was true. In our study, tend very much to um, to want to go back go back to work, to push this out of their mind and to kind of deal with it by repressing it and and continuing with their work. So, you know, I'll I'll make that kind of comment to you to see bereavement is hard and long. Often it disturbs, destroys marriages and the rate of marital problems and, and separation, divorce, quite high because the husband and the wife grieve in different ways and they interrupt each other's grieving. Uh, the father, often the one of them doesn't want to be brought back to the bereavement. They want to deal with it through escaping it. How Joe Biden is doing it, He doesn't seem to be someone who is escaping it. He seems to be uh, so authentic and looking at everything. But whether or not this will slow him down in his work, uh, it's hard to say. You could even say that maybe, maybe because of his work, he may handle the bereavement much better. But I can't make any other statement than that, not knowing Joe Biden, only seeing his public persona.
1: You uh, you also refer to uh, to bereavement of uh, of losing a spouse, and taking that to the positive side though, you write a lot about love and you help people. And and taking it back to the beginning of our interview, you have this story in this book uh, uh, with the title story "Love's Executioner," mm-hmm. and you have this distinction between and I've never heard this framing before between what you call falling in love and standing in love. So explain that to me. Yeah, I think the difference between falling in love and standing in love, I may have gotten that from Eric Frome, uh,
0: perhaps. But what I, what I really meant there is that uh, there, I'm making a difference between a kind of romantic Uh, Impassioned, somewhat irrational love, where you can't see straight, and especially where you aren't seeing the other person really. And the story is about that. You're idealizing the person. You're seeing the person in a very uh, unreal way. Whereas when I talk about these long-term involvements, I'm talking about a kind of deeper love, where or an authentic love. Uh, where you are, you are concerned for the being of the other person. Um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have that in my own life because I'm married to a woman that I knew since I was 15 years of age, and, uh, and it started off with kind of romantic love, but it's gone on to a very uh, a different kind of love now. Interesting enough, in in my marital bereavement. If if two people have had a very, very wonderful relationship, the, the chances are they tend to do better in bereavement. It's counterintuitive in a way. They tend to do better. The people who do worse, I think, in, in marital bereavement are the people who've had a very unsatisfying marriage, the people who have a ton of regrets, about what they did, what they did to the other person, or regrets they stayed in the marriage, or whatever. There's too much unfinished business going on, and that, that makes bereavement much, much more difficult.
1: I mean, just that insight is, I would think, enough to prompt some patients to, towards positive change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and, you know, as, as you're saying that, I'm looking, I mean, you pointed me to your Facebook page. I had no idea until we, right before we started the conversation. Uh, You talk about rippling. I guess this is how, you know, we certainly ripple today through things like Facebook. Uh, You have 125,257 people who have liked your Facebook page. And right at the top of it is this beautiful picture of your entire extended family with, I presume, that's your wife next to you on your right? Yes, and your wife, Marilyn. And you've been married for how long? Oh, oh, over 60 years. You describe your marriage as such a joyful, deep love. How were you and Marilyn able to accomplish that?
0: One answer to that, and this is not the only answer, is that we, we we shared the same kind of intellectual life. Marilyn was a marvelous and She was the valedictorian of my high school, not me. Uh, she went to Wellesley. She got a PhD at Johns Hopkins, and she's been she's been almost matching me now over these last 20 years, book for book. She has a new book coming out tomorrow. I got a nice big review, full-page review, in the New York Times yesterday and the Sunday Times. So she's a scholar. We live a very a scholarly kind of life. We're interested in the same types of things. Uh, there are ways in which you know, I'm much more oriented towards the sciences than she towards... Towards the humanities, but uh, also my, my a great part of myself, which is a writer. Uh, I've had a writer deep inside of me ever since I can remember, and so most of my life uh, over the last 30 years has been spent in has been spent in writing. Uh, so we're very close in, in in those in those things. So I wish I could tell you what our real secret is, but I can only tell you that uh, I I adore her. And uh, we're very much together.
1: Many of us, and I think you refer to this. You know, you know, many people see that there's a dichotomy between patients and the people who aren't patients. And you say patienthood is ubiquitous. We're all, in a sense, patients, correct? Or we all share the same human condition. I would like you to go to the prologue of Love's Executioner because it it really sort of. Uh, Changed my perspective a little bit and and gave me more empathy just reading it and I want to hear you read it out loud that first page of the prologue of of Love's Executioner imagine the scene three to four hundred people strangers to
0: one another are told to pair up and ask their partner one single question what do you want over and over and over again could that be simpler one innocent question and its answer. And yet time after time, I've seen this group exercise evoke unexpectedly powerful feelings. Often within minutes, the room rocks with emotion. Men and women, and these are by no means desperate, are needy, but successful, well-functioning, well-dressed people who glitter as they walk, are stirred to their depths. They call out to those who are forever lost, dead or absent parents, spouses, children friends, I want to see you again I want your love I want you to know you're proud of me I want you to know I love you and how sorry I am I never told you I want you back, I'm so lonely I want the childhood I never had I want to be healthy, to be young again I want to be loved, to be respected I want my life to mean something I want to accomplish something I want to matter to be important to be remembered so that's how that starts out that was an exercise
1: done in a large group. And so all those wants, uh, and in a sense, uh, what strikes me is, I had coffee at my coffee place this morning, yeah, and uh, a local artist walked in, a woman named Allie Royce Sobel, and I told her I was interviewing you, she did not know you were. I read her that passage, and her reaction was, well, it's interesting, sometimes we can be more open with strangers than we can with people closer to us, because she said we're not worried about their opinion of us. What do you think about that? That I think is
0: often very true. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote about this. I've done a little supervision of of a therapist who's on this one of these websites uh, called Talkspace, where you can you go in and you you get a certain amount of sessions or unlimited number of sessions for a certain amount of money per month, and you text the therapist. So you're not actually seeing the therapist, nor is the therapist getting your text when you send it. The therapist will answer you back in two, three, or four hours. Now, that seems to me like a terrible model for psychotherapy, frankly, because I so much focus on, on the intimacy and the here and now and working together. But I try to be open-minded and see, because this, this, this form of therapy is is very commonly used now, certainly for people who can't afford uh, ongoing therapy. Uh, but, one, but I'm learning a few things from it. One of the things that she tells me though, is that people were, are apt to reveal much more if they don't see the therapist. And they, in fact, they will say things to the therapist and they tell them, I was in therapy for a couple of years and I never told my therapist this. So that's, that's sort of interesting. So, yes, I think maybe it is, uh, and certainly in in therapy and in group therapy, I've done a lot of group therapy. Uh, much of my career was spent with that. People will be telling other members of the group, and the rules are that this is confidential. The rules are they,
1: they tell people, other people in the group, things they have never told their best friends. And yet when you, when you write about friendship... This is interesting. I I wish I had followed up with this. I I had an opportunity. I spent uh, close to an hour with Elie Wiesel a couple of years ago. And I asked him a question. And and, and again, maybe you can address both aspects of this question. The first question was, I, I don't know if you've ever heard him speak at his lectures, but he has a great sense of humor. And so my first question was, how did your sense of humor survive what you survived? And his answer was, He said, without a sense of humor, I can only imagine going into a depression that would have lasted my whole life. And he said, and there's one other thing that's a critical piece for his mental health, a friend, having a friend. And he didn't even use the word friends plural. And he said, I treat friendship like a religion. And I wish I had followed up and said, well, what what is friendship like when you treat it like a religion? And I know when you speak about friendship, you talk about the importance of transparency and how transparency begets transparency and and makes the friendship closer. Tell me about that and what you've experienced in that context, both in therapy and and outside of therapy. Sure. First of all, let me just give you, I've spent a lot of time with Viktor Frankl. He went through
0: a similar experience Ellie Wiesel and he says what kept him alive was something we were you and I were talking about several minutes ago about rippling what he kept him alive was the idea that he was going to be right about this experience and have others know about it that they would that this all wouldn't be forgotten and that's so that's what Victor what kept him alive but as for, going back to your question about about friendships, when Ali Viazal says, I think of that as a religion, I think by that he means that that's how much importance he places on it. I do, too. Uh, my friends are extremely important to me. I have a whole series of friends that I speak to every week, if more if they're in this location. I have a, a close friend, a cousin of mine, who I've known since I was two years old and he was born uh, at that point, so we've been, we've been very close together. So I think of contacts, males and female friends, is tremendously important. I think it's very important, the therapist, not, not to get yourself isolated, but to a slightly different topic, but to, uh, in a sense, be in groups of people, be with other people, not to live an isolated life as as a therapist. And I, I've never done that. So yeah, we I, I do have a close a lot of close friends, and there are some to whom I tell everything and i think it's good to have that kind of confidant uh, the more you mutually share i think the closer the, the closer the bond
1: so there there are two issues here uh, there's friendship and um, well i'm thinking about it, i'm thinking back to a story and this comes back to the issue of love and i think you say in one of your works that there is a correlation between the amount of anxiety one feels about one's own mortality and the level of fulfillment one has in one's life—the more fulfilled you are, the less you think about the, the, your mortality. Exactly, I agree with that entirely. I put it in a somewhat different way. That, how, uh, how do you how do you put it, and and what evidence do you have? Because you've, by the way, how many patients have you had over how many years? Oh, I can't even even begin to predict that. I've never been in
0: full-time private practice. I've I've been a Stanford professor all this time, but even then I would see 15 to 20 patients a week. And doing groups, I've had you know, I see a lot more patients, a uh, lot more contact with uh, with patients in that way.
1: So so rough, roughly, roughly, roughly speaking, we're talking about, a th- uh, I, I did the math quickly, uh, uh, roughly a 1,000 a year. You've been practicing for about 50 years. We're talking about 50,000, but really many more than that. Well, you're, you're seen saying that 50,000
0: hours you're talking about.
1: Oh, 50,000 hours. I yeah, got
0: you. Yeah, you're right, right.
1: So this idea, though, this idea of the more fulfilled one is, the less one fears. It would, just like you said, the, the, the mourning process is less painful in the healthier relationships. Uh, exactly. So, so, tell me what evidence you have of that. What evidence I have of that? Well, I'm sorry, in, in terms of just your experience, you know, when did you start to notice that pattern that the more fulfilled one is, the less one has that anxiety that sometimes takes over other people? I've seen that happen in a great number of patients. I saw it happen,
0: and I saw it happen, in, saw it happen in, in the therapy groups I used to lead with cancer patients. I'll never forget one patient, a woman. Uh, these were all patients who had advanced breast cancer, which was much more lethal in those days than it is now. Uh, so everyone in the group had metastasis and was going to die of their disease. And this was a very depressed. Uh, older woman, uh, well, she was an older woman, she was about, about in her late forties, early fifties. And one day she came to the group and she had better she had brighter clothes on, and she had a little bit of a sparkle. And and when we and she looked better, as she looked much less depressed. When we asked her what had happened, and she says I made a very, very important decision this week. I decided that I would model how to die with grace I would model that for my children. And uh, that was a tremendously important piece of learning for me, too. She was a way of imbuing the end of her life with still something that would be meaningful, meaningful to others. So it's the same kind of rippling effect. Even then, as she's dying, she has something else to offer, and that's how to face death.
1: Let me ask you. Um, I had mentioned the parenting issue, and you know, we're all of us parents now who have kids who are still growing up. Where we're looking for those insights, based on the patients and the and the study you've done over the years, do you have any insights for parents today in terms of where we should intervene and can act and should act, and where we should sort of maybe withdraw and take a step back? I can only tell you the things that are just very obvious what I try to do with my own parents
0: and often it's it's very different from one's own parenting. That's what I mean by breaking by breaking the cycle. But to to try and be generous and supportive in every way. And you know, one is a parent even into a very old age. I mean I still got my children and and not only that, my grandchildren too, but I, I'm still looking out for my children and wanting to be helpful and uh, I heard my wife on the phone earlier this morning. Someone was inviting her to speak, and she couldn't help mentioning, well, we have a son who's a winemaker, and maybe, maybe he could help to, to you, know, you could serve some of his wine at this. So we we don't ever give up our, our parenthood. I had an interesting experience reading the prologue of this Love's Executioner. There is a story behind that prologue, and the, and the story is when I wrote Love's Executioner, it was the first time I really branched out from writing textbooks to writing something that might engage a wider audience, to write stories, because uh, this has been within me forever. So I left that out, and I wrote these stories, but then I thought with my professorial hat, i better explain what these stories are all about. So I wrote a 60-page afterward for this, and then uh, I was published with basic books, and I had an editor there who was an editor from hell, and from heaven as well. She was, But she got on my case, and she said, you cannot write 60 pages afterwards because, uh, you know, you, you've got to let the stories do the teaching, let the stories do the talking. So she and I battled, oh, probably for six months to a year, and we got that down to this 10- or 11-page prologue that you're seeing. But whenever
1: I look at that prologue, I think of that editor, Phoebe Haas, I think of her face and how she made it a much better book. Was there something in your childhood that as you look back now, led to the path of a of a very high achieving and very dedicated doctor who is really, really trying to do everything possible to help their patients, even when they're resisting the help.
0: One story is when I was about 13 or 14, I've just been writing this in my memoir too, my father had a, a heart attack uh and he was near death and we were waiting for the doctor to come doctors came to visit your house that day and my mother was very upset and screaming at me, saying I had caused this. That's the kind of relationship we had. So I was absolutely, absolutely overwhelmed. And so the doctor came. He drove up to the house. I could hear the tires crunching the leaves in Washington, DC in the autumn. And uh, and he came up to the house. And I knew that doctor. He'd been my doctor, too. And he immediately, uh, he shook, you know, put his hand on my head and waved my hair. And uh, greeted me And then when he was with my father He let me listen to my father's heart So that I could hear that it was beating steadily And he says, you know It's a, it's a ticking very well And he's going to be alright I was so grateful to that doctor His name was Benjamin Manchester That I somehow I think At some part of me I sort of resolved that I would I would Try to pass that along to others That kind of great Great relief that he had so I've always, I've always had this mutual, this double career as a doctor. I've always wanted to help and to heal. Uh, I could, if I couldn't have written, I could have been a doctor very well if hadn't gone into psychiatry. I'd like that life. But so uh, I've had this dual career of being a doctor and then, then being a writer because I've always absolutely been infatuated with literature.
1: Well, two, two things occur to me as you tell that story. I recently uh, interviewed, for, for this Wavemaker Conversations, my, my friend and former colleague at CNN, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. I, I said, when did it happen for you, this, this aspiration to be a doctor?
2: I wasn't a particularly great student when I was in middle school and even the early part of high school. I have to pause on that.
1: <laughs> Sanjay Gu- I was not a particularly great student
2: in middle school and early into high school? Early part of high school. When did it change? My mother's father, who I was very close to, had a stroke when I was in my junior year of high school. And it was a profound experience for us because you know there's nobody in my family who was in the medical profession. So we didn't spend a lot of time in hospitals at all. So suddenly my grandfather, and somebody I was very, very close to, was in the hospital and he had a stroke. And I was there with him. I used to go visit him nearly every day. And these doctors, who happened to be neurosurgeons, were the ones caring for him and they ended up doing this operation on him that restored blood flow to his brain. And it was just this unbelievable thing. Like that was their job. The idea that your job was simply to go help somebody and you were trained to do that, that was the first time that my love of science started to really merge with medicine and the more compassionate parts of science. Like, So that, I think that's what happened.
0: Well, it's it's not a too dissimilar story from from mine. Yes, yes, I, I I have that feeling too. I've always had utmost respect for for people trying to save lives and work in the hospital. I'm very proud of my daughter, who's uh, who's gone into medicine, and uh, my uh, daughter-in-law
1: as well. Here's the final question for you, because you have talked about how people often use sex to push back the fear of their own mortality is a very powerful weapon for that. And so I will tell you when I was going through a period of grief, after my parents died, I went to see a grief counselor and he sort of heard that I was a creative person and I was a writer. And he said, look, a few things, get regular exercise, very important. He said, stay connected with people, friendships, very important. And then the third thing he said to me, And this comes full circle to you, Irv Alum. He said, never keep any ideas trapped in your brain. And that gets to the idea of writing Mm -hmm. as, again, a way to continue those ripples. So my question for you is, what is a more powerful, fulfilling way to live a less anxious life? More sex or more writing? (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, more writing there, there's a there's a time limit on, on, on the sex gratification and it does begin to wane and wane and wane but the writing uh,
1: can can stimulate so many people who you will never know Dr. Irvy uh, uh first of all I didn't know you were writing your memoir now when is it coming out? Oh
0: I, I'm going to be another year or two on this
1: listen promise me I, I, I don't I'm not ashamed to, to try to get you to promise me because I know you've done this with your patients who say Dr. Yalem or Irv, I just want four sessions. And then you, at the fourth session, you realize, oh, if I could just get a couple more sessions, (laughs) this person could really get some. Dr. Yalem, Irv Yalem, would you mind making at least a, a commitment that you will make an effort to come back on Wavemaker Conversations to talk about your memoir? Well, you're, you're a great
0: interviewer and a great conversationalist, and I've had a very good time for this last hour, so how can I say no?
1: Well, I, I don't take... Uh, I, I take yes for an answer. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to continuing reading uh, uh, your work and uh, and to seeing uh, all the ripples that you continue to create. Thanks so much, Michael. If you like what you're hearing on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, you can subscribe on iTunes. If you have an iPhone, look for that purple microphone icon. A lot of people don't know it's there. It's right on your screen. Touch it. Search Wavemaker. Click on the Wavemaker logo and then click subscribe. It's free. If you're on Android, you can listen on the new CBS Podcast Network, Play It, Play.its/wavemaker, and if you can't get enough of these wavemaker stories, you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael Shoulder. To all the wavemaker subscribers, thank you for being insanely curious.
3: and this is my impression of a person having a phone conversation in the elevator. What? Yeah, no, I'm in the elevator. The elevator! Yeah! Anyway, I bundled our home and auto insurance through Progressive. No, bundled! We're going to save big bucks now. No, bucks! Bucks!
2: Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save.
3: Hello? Hello? She hung up.
2: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers.